Look, if you're two kids leaving Facebook doing an analytics startup and you went to MIT, guess what? There's a lot of venture capital for you. But if you're Leslie and Nigel from FanDuel, there might not be so much venture capital for you. That's the magic of bullpen. We find those kind of false negatives. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. This episode is with Paul Martino, the co-founder of Bullpen Capital, founder of a number of different companies. We talk about his early investment in FanDuel, his advice for entrepreneurs when their back's up against the wall, and the investing style and thesis that he executes. Ton of good stuff here. Great stories from someone who has seen stratospheric heights in the business world. Hope you'll enjoy it. Here is Paul Martino. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. So I I appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. It's nice to be talking with you. Absolutely. Thrilled to be here. Glad to be a a part of a long line of quite a few interviews you've done. Impressive roster. Thank you. Thank you. So our audience will be familiar with venture capital generally, but in certain ways, being a VC is akin to being like a private equity investor, where that can mean so many different things. You can be playing at so many different industries. You can be playing at so many different uh, sizes and scales. And I was, you know, reading here before we we hopped on. Uh, you just relatively recently raised your latest fund, your fifth fund, uh, with about 130 million dollars in it. Can you just talk a little bit about in the present? Uh, you know, what type of size and scale you're investing in, what type of companies you're investing in, and maybe a little bit about how that's changed over the course of having five funds and, you know, learning lessons, having wins and losses, all that good stuff. Absolutely. Aaron, look, at a high level, there's two classes of venture capital, and it is the gross simplification. There are your later stage people who are what I would really, I, I don't consider myself a private equity guy. Technically, by definition, we are in the private equity, but I'm a company builder. I'm investing in companies that are 12 people. I'm investing in companies when they're doing their first million in revenue. Uh, And I am, so therefore, you know, seed stage and what we call post-seed for us and pre-seed, less than $5 million in the company, less than 20 people. That's the world of early stage venture capital. That's where we hang out. There is later stage venture capital, and that really does feel like private equity. That's when a KKR comes in. So for example, FanDuel was one of my uh, most famous investments. The first money was a group in, in, in London called Scottish Enterprises. It was us. And then Comcast showed up and then KKR showed up. So increasingly the real private equity dudes show up after us early stage people do what we do. Gotcha. And so at that stage, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you know, as you're approaching A, they're looking for some real, uh, I don't want to say hard metrics, but metrics with some, some meat on the bone that you can say, okay, there really is a lifetime value to this customer that you're acquiring. There really is uh, you know, a, a significant market that you are effectively tapping into. And at some point earlier, not to say that there aren't any you know, metrics or data, but there is a little bit more feel. There is a little bit more like, do I believe in this entrepreneur? Do I believe in kind of the story that they're telling? Because the data might be a lagging indicator to some other 
inputs that we're receiving. So I'll use my sports analogy, which is how we get the name bullpen. I know you're a sports guy there in Pittsburgh. So the round in front of us is the starting pitcher, right? That's a Mike Maple Budgate. That's a Josh Koppelman from first round. They're investing when you're talking about it. It might just be a PowerPoint. It might be a, a dream. I'm the middle reliever. I, I, I'm, I'm your sixth and seventh inning guy, hence the name bullpen. I come in when it's early, but it works. And you need your first little bit of money to show that you can go from two salespeople to eight salespeople. And then the people after me, they're the closers. That's when Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia puts $25 million in because it now works and their money is going to scale. The early money is to test, mine is to de-risk, and theirs is to scale. And those are kind of the three stops in there. And the baseball analogy of your starting pitcher, your middle reliever, and your closer, pretty close to accurate. And because of the hardness of some of the data that those bigger firms come in, you know, after you, there's also a degree of like, almost like being the kingmaker. And, and maybe to some degree, you are going to be the king because your metrics are great. But the other side of that is when you have that war chest, your ability to then go compete in the marketplace, whether that's, you know, I, I'm trying to think of like how many different uh, FanDuel campaigns, you know, either before COVID, like being in a stadium and, and, you know, hearing about it or seeing it or a podcaster being supported by it in some way, shape or form. That's right. And, and what happens when, you know, Sequoia is the king of the hill in the game. I mean, there are other companies that are great, but Sequoia has been the king of the hill for a long time. My business partner, Rich Melman, who I started Bullpen with, he started Electronic Arts back in 1982. And Sequoia, Don Valentine, the legendary guy, wrote him the check. And Sequoia has pretty much been on top since 1982. And when Sequoia shows up and puts $50 million in your company, quite frankly, their $50 million is different than most people's $50 million. Because there really is a kingmaker aspect to that and an instilling of fear in other competitors that they've picked this one. Now they're wrong too, don't get me wrong, it's still a risky business. But yeah, when, when a company like that shows up, people go, okay, not only do they have the money, they have the backing of that group. So take me a little bit into who you're looking for. So, so we understand the role that Bullpen plays as you know, getting, like in terms of a stage and a, and a, and a check size, but is there a specific industry, you know, you know given your um, you know, interest in sports, partner with a background at EA, is there a, a thesis, an industry, a, a vertical that you guys either just prefer as like a, you know, a secular trend that you're excited about, or you kind of self-evaluate and say, this is where we can really potentially be the most valuable as a board member, as the kind of partner in the business? We are anti-thematic. That doesn't mean there aren't areas that we know better than others. I know sports and gaming really well, but I don't wake up in the morning saying, I have a thesis about sports betting, therefore I'm looking for this company. I wait for an entrepreneur to come into my office and educate me about something I didn't know about. So, so I love, I just did a deal in Orlando, Florida in freight forwarding called OneRail. I didn't know anything about freight forwarding. I learned a lot about freight forwarding from the CEO I realized it was a great investment, and so I made the investment. Now, on the other hand, if there are categories that I know better, like sports betting, and a new company comes in, which is you know something related to stuff like jackpot and lottery or FanDuel and fantasy sports, I'm going to have a quicker learning curve on that one. But I'm not afraid of something I've never seen before. One of, one of the deals that's doing great in our portfolio is a K-12 through education tech company from Montreal started by a teacher named Paper. I mean, this is when you think about something that's as far removed from the stuff that Paul Martino would be known for, that would be it. And that company is kicking butt. 
you know, revenues went from like one to 20 in the last 18 months because K through 12 mentoring software is really important in COVID. And, and yeah. it's just one of these things I learned a lot. And so I'm now happy to go do another K through 12 investment because I not only got to learn it from the CEO, I helped and coached. And that's where our value add is. My CEO coach was the late Bill Campbell, CEO coach to Steve Jobs and Larry Page. I He's from Pittsburgh, you know. Was it? He's from Pittsburgh, from Homestead. Homestead. He's from Homestead. Well, us Pittsburghers will claim him. Us Pittsburghers will claim him. Oh, trust me. He loved Pittsburgh, man. He, anytime they were in the playoffs, we would have friendly wagers on cell phones back and forth. Part of the reason we got along is he's like, Martino, you're a blue collar kid from the Philly suburbs. I grew up poor in Homestead. You know, us two effers would get along is basically what he said when I met him. I'm, I'm really not kidding. And he was much cruder than that when he said it. But, but he loved, I mean, to say he loved Pittsburgh, to say he had affinity to Homestead is an understatement. And I look for CEOs that have that blue collar orientation. And so Phil Cutler, the CEO of Paper from Montreal, couldn't be more far removed from two guys from Philly and Pittsburgh, but he had that blue collar edge as a former teacher that Bill would have loved. And I show up, I say, you know, Phil, I'm going to teach you everything Bill taught me. And that's my value add back to you. So in, in that same spirit though, when you're playing in something like freight forwarding that you don't necessarily have the domain expertise, the knowledge, like, like you've built your own businesses. You've, you've seen a lot of businesses now being on, 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 on fund five. Can you talk through the decision-making process you know, I, I'm trying to think of something better than pull the trigger, but to, 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 to finally move into action, because there's a idea of, and you know, Bezos talked about it, everyone's talking about it, you know, making a decisions with incomplete information, because that's really where you are, even if you spent an eternity researching just the fact that this startup is not fully formed means that you have incomplete information. And then when you layer in an arena that you might not necessarily have that deep domain expertise, how do you get to that point of comfort with, all right, I'm writing a multi-million dollar check? So our fund does it in the reverse order of almost every fund in existence. And it's actually the secret to why our fund works. At a traditional fund, someone will come in, did the founder impress you? What's the lineage of the company? How big is the market? And, and you start with that, and then you slowly migrate into the metrics. And then you go into the operating plan. We do the exact opposite. I will get a cold mail from LinkedIn about a company I know nothing about. And I will say, hey, CEO, can you send me your deck and your operating model? And my, me and my analyst team will go look at the operating model and we'll do all metrics. Actually, I won't even really care about what the business is even doing yet. And we'll go, wow, this looks really good. These retention numbers are greater. The sales efficiency is really good. And then we ask questions about how big is the market? What this enables us to do, Aaron, is this lets us find a deal that no one else is looking at. If you start with the thematic, where did you go to school and what's the lineage, you're going to have really good selection bias about a certain set of deals. But if you're a husband and wife team in Edinburgh, Scotland, doing fantasy sports, guess what? You only got metrics when you show up to my office. So famously, FanDuel got 70-ish no's from venture people and one yes from bullpen. And it's not because we saw something everybody else didn't. It's because we started from the metrics and then asked the questions about the team and the space later. Everyone else dismissed the deal immediately because they start with, 
the lineage, the background, the geography. And uh, that's well-serviced. Look, if you're two kids leaving Facebook doing an analytics startup and you went to MIT, guess what? There's a lot of venture capital for you. But if you're Leslie and Nigel from FanDuel, there might not be so much venture capital for you. That's the magic of bullpen. We find those kind of false negatives. We find those deals that everybody else missed as the result of starting with the numbers and then asking the subjective stuff second instead of the other way around. So you've kind of alluded to, to FanDuel here a couple of times, and I, I want to ask about your experience in that as an investor and kind of seeing its stratospheric rise, but to just contextualize, you know, once again, for the, the venture capital industry, we're, you know, imminently going to see a, uh, a public offering by Coinbase. And I saw some crazy statistic where you referenced Andreessen Horowitz. If Coinbase is valued at that $100 billion marker that's being floated, then Andreessen's stake in Coinbase would be effectively as big as their total assets under management as a firm, which speaks to this very crazy tale to venture investing where one investment returns the whole fund, you know, the, while some sputter out and don't necessarily land. Same story with like a, a Jason Kalkanis as an angel investor gets into Uber and he's made more off of that Uber bet than like 95% of his other bets or something like that. I have exposure to that investment. The original round of Uber is 3,200 to one. That's the, that's the actual number. So you can do the math, pick any dollar number you want, a thousand, a million. So you put a million dollars into Uber at 3,200 to one, that number gets big really fast. Yeah. So, so my perception, I could be wrong, is that FanDuel has a lot of those qualities in terms of not only just being a, a huge name that people recognize because it's consumer facing and they've done that type of investing from a marketing standpoint, but also just we are seeing an explosion in the size, the appetite, the basically moving from uh, gambling being this almost like black market phenomena to something that is regulated in certain markets as, as, as an acceptable behavior. Can you just talk about what you witnessed, like you said, seeing it come from a, a daily fantasy sports app into a sports gambling behemoth as it is now? Aaron, we could do a whole show on this because the, the arc of the company is such a classic Silicon Valley story. We invested in 2011 at an $8 million valuation when there were seven employees. I mean, that's the, the company is now worth $15, $20 billion and is a multi-international global operation. In 2011, if you told me that the NBA would be my co-investor in the deal, I would have laughed at you. If you told me in 2011 that the attorney general of New York would try and throw me personally in jail for running an illegal gambling operation, I would probably have laughed, you, laughed at you. And if you told me that the Federal Trade Commission would block our merger with DraftKings, I would have probably said, oh, that's funny. All those things happened. I mean, I spent a, all of us early people in FanDuel, it was a lifetime in one company. It almost died. We had FTC actions. There were literally threats of putting people in jail from attorney generals. I mean, it is a, I, I, just a, a crazy sequence. And for us to then make it out to the backside for it to be as successful as it is, is one of those truly, you know, that's why we're in this business, to get them to, 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 get them to come out on the back end like that after all of the harrowing details. My, my co-founder of a company years ago, Mark Pincus, who started Zynga, him and I started a social network called Tribe. He had this thing he told me in the early days of tribe. He's like, Martino, you understand a startup is like a nightmare that you hope you can sleep one minute more the next night from. And I'm like, yeah, that's, 
for somebody who's not ever done a startup, that's kind of a true analogy. Damn. Well, it, it's also crazy just to contemplate the way cultural norms, appetites shift. And to me, this might be an imperfect analogy, but it's almost, you know, we've seen how like the entire country wouldn't have even considered the legalization of gay marriage. And then now it's in some way, shape or form legalized across the country. Similarly, things happening with cannabis and this like, you know, war on drugs to recreational marijuana usage expanding uh, exceptionally quickly across these different states. And we're seeing a similar thing in the greater legalization of these different markets. But once again, tied to the pandemic, my, my understanding or analysis of this is you've got two major blockers. You've got the big leagues themselves. And when they realize that, holy heck, we can make a ton of money. Like they're, they just announced, you know, here in Pittsburgh, the pens are going to have like a bet MGM little suite within the, the um, I shouldn't say console center anymore, PPG arena. And then you've, so, so you've got the, the leagues who are hurting for money because they lost all these fans potentially being attendants. And then similarly, you've got the different uh, governments who are also hurting for tax revenues, who are hurting on a budgetary level. And so the primary blockers, we know that money makes the world go round. The primary blockers behind its enabling is quickly seeing you know, a path to making some money as opposed to being in the hole. And that seems like it, it's leaving a pretty open highway ahead for sports gambling generally. Uh, and, and then some. I believe, I think the stat is right. There are 32 teams in the, and 32 teams in the NFL. 28 of the owners invested in either FanDuel or DraftKings. 28 of the 32. Now, if I told you that in 2011 when we invested, I would, I would have never said, they're never going to get permission to do it. But to have 28 of the 32 of them invest in one or the other of the two big companies just speaks to how massively this changed. And by the way, it is because of DraftKings and FanDuel. Daily Fantasy was the opening. Hey, this is fun. Hey, this isn't this isn't a smoke-filled back room. This is something I do with my son or my kid. Like this is this is additive. And by the way, the players love it because they get branding and they get they get drafted and there's owner like and so once the, the 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 PAs, once the you know the unions of the players started to get on board, and once people realized you watched more sports when there was a fantasy involved, then all of a sudden the leagues were like, hey, you know, wait a minute. Th th maybe this isn't the the oh my god, we can't we we can't possibly ever do sports betting. It's like, why don't we bring it into the light? And Adam Silver was really the guy to first figure it out. He, he gave he gave a press conference where he said it should come out to the light from the back off from 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 the black market and we should regulate it. And that was a, a seminal moment. And the rest of the leagues then followed his lead. So how much of that was in that initial pitch deck that you saw in, in the FanDuel pitch deck? Um, none of that was in the FanDuel pitch deck. And the original FanDuel pitch deck was daily fantasy is a new thing. We're going to be the winner in it. Now, as the company progressed, we realized wait a minute, the leagues are down with this. What if sports betting gets legalized? And that's when Chris Christie in New Jersey sued and said, how come Nevada is the only guy who can take a sports bet? That ultimately led to the PASPA, which is the, the PASPA is the, is the prohibition against sports betting. It got overturned by Chris Christie in New Jersey because he wanted to have sports betting as casinos in Atlantic City in 2018. Now, by 2015, we knew that this was a possibility. But no one was writing a check to FanDuel in 2015 because of sports betting. Now, once we got to 2017 and 18 and the case is circulating through the courts, people are like, wow, this could have big upside 
if this happens. And sure enough, the case went our way. And you've now seen the massive proliferation because now the leagues are on board and the government's on board. There's no blockers. Makes sense. So as you think about the kind of second order effects downstream, we've asked, asked different folks with, with kind of their expertise going on into the future. You know, the obvious thing here is, okay, maybe it gets legalized a couple other areas, but I know you're thinking about how this changes restaurants, sports bars, stuff like that. Like help me see a little bit of how this all fits together, Paul. So you're, you're a sports fan. Can you listen to a sports talk show without hearing five ads for FanDuel and or DraftKings or William Hill or MGM? Hard to. Companies are paying on the low end $200, the mid end $500. And if they're late to the state, maybe $1,200 to $1,500 to pay for you to sign up for their app. That's literally how much they're spending. I know because I wrote those checks when I was on the board at FanDuel. And it's only gotten crazier since. I've been on the board in several years now. So in the state of Pennsylvania, it costs $10 million to buy a license to take a sports bet. So let's do a, let's do a little thought experiment. It's $10 million to be able to take a bet where I got to spend $1,000 to buy a customer. Wait a minute. What if I built the coolest restaurant in Philadelphia, didn't spend $10 million on a license, and then got all those people to pay me $1,000 when I got somebody to walk in the door and sign up? That's our new project. It's called Bankroll. We're going to build it in Philly. It's going to be running in the spring of next year, and it's going to be the first physical sports betting affiliate. Instead of a website affiliate, it's a physical affiliate, and we're going to optimize a conversion funnel so that when people walk in the door, we have an experience that's different, differentiated, fun, engaging. The servers actually advise on what they might want to do and recommend a bet, and they look at what game you're watching, and it's fun. Instead of the casino you walk into where they, they, they look like you're going to rob them. So we think there's going to be huge innovation in this kind of category where new thinking shows up and building a facility like Bankroll, which is a high-end tech-infused restaurant around conversions, no one's ever, no one's ever built something like that. Now, it could, it could work. It could fail. But this is where the next level of innovation is going to be in sports betting, this kind of stuff. So it also makes sense if you think about like the casino, there is this whole security element of someone's like running off with chips or some sort of like physical representation of the value. But if you're thinking digital and you're thinking about most of my value being on the app, sure, someone could be like taking phones, but that's always kind of a risk. And there's a whole lot of barriers to that being viable. So you basically get to rethink physical space through the lens of digital first. There's no money changing hands. There's no cake. There's nobody showing up with a satchel full of money to put a bet down. So the whole security and threat model can be completely rethought because it literally is a restaurant with technology and not a casino. But aspects of it will feel like a casino and there'll be a broadcast studio where guys like you will come and do a show or, or, uh, or, or, or will convince TBS to have Charles Barkley to do the remote there, right? That, that's all going to happen. And you're going to be like, wow, this is super cool. But it doesn't feel sketchy and there's no cigar smoke and a guy with a satchel full of money. And, and oh, by the way, the city and the neighbors probably like it a lot better this way than the threat risk associated with a casino next to you. Or get another PA guy like Pat McAfee in there. That'll really, you'll, you'll sell it every seat. That you are thinking the right way. The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co. So I kind of want to switch lanes here for a second. I want to talk 
about your kind of past entrepreneurial experiences and, and regardless of what you're selling, whether it's, you know, aggregate knowledge, a, a startup that you previously built, where you talked about tribes, some of these other things, you have to be a good salesperson. And before we kind of talk about those past companies you've built, let me talk to me about the selling of money. Cause that's the other side of this venture thing is yes, people are selling you on investing in them, but then sometimes the best deals have multiple offers and you're selling your expertise, your money into that fund versus uh, competing VC firms. So how do you think Paul about winning deals and what is it that you do to get bullpen into those best deals? So, so there are two aspects to that. The first is I actually really truly do look at a set of deals that nobody else looks at. I, I really mean that. And I'm proud of that. There are a lot of first time founders in our fund. There are a lot of founders who didn't go to fancy schools. Quite frankly, there are a lot of women and minority founders who didn't get a shot at other funds that we invested in because we had an open mind and a way to bring them in the funnel, even if it was a cold email from LinkedIn. So I am proud of the fact that a lot of our deals were not competitive and I didn't have to then use my commodity, right? Money is the ultimate commodity to convince you to take my money. So that's half my deals. But yeah, the other half of my deals, competitive and people are fighting for them. I tell them just what I told you. You come work with my fund. Andrew Trader, who started Zynga, is going to help you. Rich Melman, who started Electronic Arts, who help, is going to help you. I am an eight-time founder and one of Bill Campbell's last students. I'm going to teach you what Bill taught me. That's a pretty compelling sales pitch to a CEO to take my money over somebody else's. And did you build that network with like folks from EA and Zynga, these other ones, while you were building your own companies? Or did that start with the VC fund? All of the above. At some point, your personal brand and your fund brand are all the same thing. I, I knew Rich and, and AT prior, but I then started the fund with Rich and then I brought AT in later as our operating partner. And so, so yeah, it's everything you do is building your personal brand and venture is just an extension of your personal brand in a lot of ways. And so that networking is fundamental to, to being good at this business. Makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about this, the story of aggregate knowledge and you know what the thesis was of the company and, and the success that that reached? Yeah, so we started, it was uh, the, the beginning of Web 2.0, if you remember those days. It was mid-2000s, mid, mid 05, 06. Software as a service was a brand new thing. Cut and paste JavaScript on websites was a new thing. And we came up with a simple idea. What if you could add Amazon-style recommendations to your website in three clicks? That's what aggregate knowledge was. Recommendations and personalization, cut and paste JavaScript tags. And we, we did a gangbuster first year or two. It was just gangbuster. We raised a bunch of money from Kleiner Perkins. Overstock was our marquee customer. And then at the end of a year or two, everybody and their brother copycatted us. And we had went from zero to 20 competitors and our margins went through the floor. <laughs> It was a nightmare. And so now I'm sitting on a company that everybody thought was a surefire winner and I can't get renewals from my own customers. And we went from 100 people back down to 16 people over two courses of layoffs, reinvented the company as a data services business focused on advertising and ultimately sold the company to Newstar. But that was on a complexity scale of entrepreneurial endeavor. That was an 11 on a one to 10 because it is very hard to go from 100 people to 16 reinvent the company and then sell it successfully. I'm very proud of what we did there though, because that was, that was a hard one. So my fiance works at Stitch Fix and she's, uh, the Stitch Fix board includes Bill Gurley, a very accomplished VC. And she witnessed them do their round of layoffs at the, at the beginning of the pandemic. And 
thankfully my fiance was not a part of the, that set of layoffs, but I basically told her, I was like, look, you know, this is an exhale moment because it was a, a stressful time for everyone in, in March and April. And Gurley's savvy. He gave some great advice to Katrina and whoever else was on the team there. If, if you can help it, one hard cut, one hard layoff, uh, maybe, uh, you know, cut a little bit more off than you need to, and then chart the path forward. And, and so, you know, having gone through that experience of having to lay people off and pivot and make that adjustment yourself, how did that translate into the advice that you were giving your portfolio companies back in March and April when they were trying to navigate, you know, maybe getting kicked in the teeth and having to kind of get up off the mat? So I actually wrote an entire long form 20 page article on your question. It was literally entitled how the 2008 financial crisis saved my company. So let me tell you what happened. That backdrop of the two layoffs, the summer of 2008. Now, when did the financial crisis get into full swing? It was in September of 08, just before the election, McCain-Obama. So guess what the lucky break I got was? Everything was so screwed everywhere that nobody gave a shit about my little company going under. And so we were able to stay out of the limelight while we had to do all the hard stuff that just happened that you described with your wife and Gurley and Katrina, the CEO. Usually that happens under the bright lights if you're a hot startup. We got to hide. And that ability to hide for those six to nine months, without it, I guarantee you the company would have gone under. And so I actually interviewed, we actually hired a third party to interview all of the executives and do this long form piece. It was on TechCrunch. I'm very proud of the piece. It's called How the 2008 Recession Saved My Startup and How COVID Might Actually Do the Same for You. We wrote it in March right at the beginning when people were scared to death. And uh, I highly encourage your readers to go seek it out because there really are parallels and lessons there. And that is, I, I think across, across culture beyond the world of startups, it is just an experience that we'll look back on as it shook us out of a lot of habits, a lot of, you know, we're doing it because we've been doing it a certain way. And whether that's moving, whether that's changing a job, whether that's, you know, whatever the change is, I'm hopeful that for a lot of people, it catalyzed the change that they needed to continue to evolve. Yep. Right. Word. Well, Paul, this has been fantastic. Um, anything else that you were hoping to share today that I can give you a chance to? I mean, we got, we got to talk a little sports. I mean, what, what do you guys think about, come on, you're in Pittsburgh. I mean, what do you think about this Wentz fiasco we just went through? I mean, come on, that doesn't happen, right? Yeah, I would say that in Pittsburgh, we have been relatively privileged in the consistency that the Rooney family gives us of, we got the same couple coaches, we'll tend to stick with, you know, our, I don't think there's many people in Pittsburgh that think like Ben still really got it, but there's kind of a loyalty factor there. Almost like the, you know, the last years of like Mark Cuban, the Mavs and Dirk, where it's like, yeah, he's as stiff as a board now, but like, he's our legend and let's, you know, let him ride out on his terms. And that has to hopefully have some, some uh, ramifications downstream. But then, you know, if we lose, you know, Juju and, and a bunch of other talented guys, I, I think we'll still be in some trouble. Yeah, but that's right. Ownership matters. Leadership matters. That's how this all ties back. Bad ownership, bad leadership. It all starts in the corner office. And the teams that consistently win have it. And guess what? The teams that consistently lose don't. No surprise. 
Facts. So what are, what are your predictions? Are you expecting, you know, uh, a bottoming out, a multi-year rebuild? We, we actually just had another Philly fan on like an episode ago. So this will be a, a rehashing or at least a, a, a cool comparison between different Philly fans. Eagles do not have much of a history of long rebuilds. Even though the team doesn't have the storied history with all the Super Bowls you guys have, the team doesn't stay down long. I mean, you go look historically. When the Eagles have a bad season, it's about one and done. So I'm optimistic. I think this year is lost completely. But don't be surprised if next year after the team is a competitive team again, because that is the history of what this front office has been for both better and worse. And if you have strong leadership, particularly in football, where there's so much roster turnover year to year, it's not like it's just the same guy. I mean, sometimes it's the same guys all the time, but you have so much turnover that you can, you know, hopefully reset a culture relatively quickly if you have that leadership in place. So I, I buy that. I, you know, I was, I've always looked at it as I, I root for PA. I loved Donovan McNabb was one of my favorite players ever. So um, I don't, I don't hold the resentment against like the Philly Pittsburgh rivalry too much. Although I do have some friends I, who went to Pitt with me who are Philly fans. So sometimes I'll like, you know, just needle him about uh, Embiid or something like that. Good. Love it. Wonderful. Well, um, Paul, if folks want to learn more about you, about bullpen capital, uh, check out all the cool things that you guys are up to. What digital coordinates can we provide people if they want to learn more? The easiest thing, if you want to get a hold of me, send me a mail to paul at bullpencap.com. I mean, my email address is bullpen cap. I have bullpen cap and bullpen capital. My email address is designed so that people can cold mail me. Like if you, you hear this podcast go, I wonder what that guy's email is. My email is exactly what it should be. Uh, remember, our firm is a firm that invests in companies that have sent us cold pitches on LinkedIn. There aren't a lot of other venture people who will say that. We, we wear it as a badge of honor that we look at those deals. So go to bullpencap.com, send me an email at paul at bullpencap.com. We are super responsive and you know, I, I'll, I'll reply to anything. Even if it's, I'm your wrong guy, talk to this person instead. Love it. We're going to link that all in the show notes. You can find it in the description for this video or podcast where you're listening to it or at goingdeepthere.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. But before we let you go, Paul, I want to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Here it is. I've been thinking about this since you told me you were going to ask, and I got to watch some of the other shows. You know, I run a venture capital firm. I've started eight companies. I'm in the process of starting another company. And people ask me, they go, Martino, how, how do you have the time to do that? Here's my challenge. I start every single meeting every day on time. If I am two minutes late to a meeting, Aaron, call the authorities because I might have been in a car wreck. And, and I just... I am an East Coast guy that way. And so my edict is to the audience is the following. Every meeting you have this week, start on top. See if you can, act, see if you can actually do what I'm encouraging you to do. Can you take every meeting this entire week and not be late for a single one of them? Because that is the way you get efficient with your time. And it's also the way you're respectful for the other person on the other side. So there's my challenge to your audience. I love that. So my dad is a construction manager and one of his bosses, and you know, like you get the couple messages from parents and it's just drilled into your head. He would always, his boss told me, he's like, I just love it. That's how I roll. How you do anything is how you do everything. And they talk about, I don't know if you've ever heard, um, I'm blanking on the band right now, but they had some crazy amount of riders associated with their huge uh, cinematic like stage show. And the band, one of the things they wanted was exclusively green 
jelly beans or Skittles or something as part of their rider. And everyone's like, oh, what's such pretentious, you know, egotistical whatevers. And in an interview, what one of the band members said was, no, 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 no. If we came into the dressing room and we saw that the jelly beans or whatever it was, weren't just green, then we knew we were working with a partner that did not have the attention to detail and would mess up something else about our show. So that was our cue to go look at everything else. And that's why they were a world-class band I, whose name I can't remember. I know that story. I can't, I can't remember either, but exactly right. Uh, that attention to detail, that matters. And you know, you, you want people to hit deadlines. You want people to take deadlines seriously. Your respect for time as a leader cycles all the way down. So I love that. I, I obviously, I'm a fellow. I don't know if you think of Pittsburgh as an East Coaster or not. I, I, I identify with that ethos. I like that you're with that ethos. But yes, Pittsburgh is more Midwest than East Coast. That's not an insult. I think it's a more accurate statement, though. Yeah, we we get like uh, dis at certain times owned or disowned by different parties, depending on the the, the mood and the the perspective. But uh, Paul, I really appreciate you taking some time to come on the podcast, sharing the stories. Uh, best of luck, continuing to invest, and hopefully we can do this again sometime. Right. Thank you, Aaron. We just went deep with Paul Martino. Hope we're not there. Is a fantastic day. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the end of my interview with Paul. If you enjoyed this, then I would strongly recommend two other interviews with venture capital investors, Andy Ratcliffe from Benchmark and Matt Harbaugh from Mountain State Capital. Two good conversations about VC, if that's something you're interested in, all here on Going Deep. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.